Hello again, and welcome to the Fat Feminist Witch Podcast, the show where I do a little ranting, raving, and wand-waving. Got a really special show this week. I had the opportunity to interview author Lasara Firefox Allen about the new book, Jailbreaking the Goddess, a radical revisioning of feminist spirituality, which launches today, July 8th, uh, through Llewellyn Publications. So this is a two-part interview, and you're about to listen to part one. In part one, we discuss how she's feeling about the launch and how she deals with haters being a a feminist personality. Uh, We talk about trans-exclusionary paganism and gender identity, cultural appropriation, and some ethical practices to employ during pagan events and rituals. So if you are someone that organizes pagan events or rituals or you're looking to, this this is a good episode to get some tips on that. So listen up and then go out and get the book from Amazon or Llewellyn and definitely request it at your local metaphysical shop. For Canadians dealing with the Canada post-strike, there is a Kindle version on Amazon, so you can get that instantly. Okay, so here we go. Part one of my interview with Lothara Firefox Allen. So I am like incredibly excited right now. (laughs) I'm a little bit nervous, but I'm really excited. Excellent. I am too. So, so the book comes out Friday, right? Friday is like your official release date. Yes, Friday the eighth is the official release date of Jailbreaking the Goddess. It has been in what I'm calling soft launch for like a month at this point. Um, so, so a number of people have copies, but the official launch is not until Friday. Yeah, I was wondering because I saw a few people posting online that they had picked up a copy at Barnes and Noble or other places at, at bookstores already so I was, was kind of wondering but the eighth is your official launch that's really exciting are you excited I am I'm excited I'm overwhelmed um <laughs> you know it's a learning curve like um a percentage of being a successful writer is writing a book but it's not the highest percentage unfortunately <laughs> <laughs> no I absolutely <laughs> believe you <laughs> yeah so right now I'm like thoroughly um my my learning curve for the last number of months now has been how to market a book. Um, this is my second book, Sexy, which came out a decade ago. But it's a whole new mar- – it's a completely different world. Yeah, the world of books has absolutely changed a lot, e- even in just 10 years. It's it's yeah. changed so much. I don't even – were ebooks even really a, a thing back in 2005? Not like they are now. Not they like they are now. Yeah, not not like they are now at any it, it, by any stretch. And additionally, um, and I have an established uh, platform, so that's good. Yeah. Uh, but uh, that component of authordom uh, is a whole a whole other beast. And so, like needing to learn how to be a more effective online presence and the marketing stuff is. Um, is you know its own challenge. Yeah, yeah. It's but, a, but the fact of the matter is, if if people don't know about the book, they're not they, going to buy it. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah, and especially um, being an outspoken feminist uh, on the internet, especially with social media, is it can be kind of scary. It can be super scary. For um, sure. Have you gotten any sort of negative backlash in in like a? Have you gotten any like kind of memorable negative backlash in response to the book? Um, you know, I'll, yes, and uh, I I try, you know, not to sound too hippie about it, but I try not to attach to it. It's yeah. better for my personal well-being if I don't over-attach to the detractors. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my when when my older kid was a preteen, I we got her a shirt that said "I hurt my haters." that's kind of my my personal motto I heart my haters you know like they're they're doing their job they're out there doing their thing and like (laughs) the best thing that I can possibly do is one only interact when I have the spoons for it are you familiar with um with spoons theory absolutely I have a I have a chronic pain disease so spoons are like my whole life me too So, so I have I live with fibro fibromyalgia and then I also have bipolar disorder so so like some days I wake up and I'm like all I get to do today is survive like today is a survive day and that's gonna be my big win you know yeah absolutely you know how it is so some days I'm like and right now I'm my plate is so full with the marketing that I just I'm not even having arguments for fun right now (laughs) 
<laughs> it's only the important arguments now. I'll right. save the fun ones for later. Right. Exactly. So, like, um, you know, the most vocal opposition, there are two quarters, of course, we could anticipate there are two quarters of vocal opposition to the um, ideas that I'm putting out there. One, of course, is the whole menemist movement people who just, you know, irk me to no end. Oh, they're just, and, they're just so colorful. <laughs> I, I have a hard time taking them seriously and and then when and then when I do take them seriously it ruins my day so yeah. like <laughs> taking them seriously is honestly just too scary it's almost like it's almost like Donald Trump right at first it was kind of funny and then when people thought about it too hard it got horrifying and I yeah, <laughs> I right. feel like meninists in general are kind of the same way <laughs> yeah they're horrifying oh. and, and and it's a spectrum of course so yeah. in my opinion some people don't even identify themselves as menemists, but they are. Yeah. You know, and so I really try to, I was a lot more tolerant three months ago than I am now, <laughs> to be honest. And and um, it, it hit a point where I realized that the sort of menemist um, contingent was detracting from the experience that my fan base or my client base was having. Yeah. And so I just started blocking people who obviously were just there to mess with us. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They weren't contributing anything. They didn't have any real problems. They just wanted to hate something. Right. And it's not like anybody's mind was going to be changed. Yeah, absolutely. So, so that kind of spinning my wheels is no longer entertaining to me. So uh, it, I don't feel like it adds to my platform. So I just mostly will tend to block people who go too far in that direction on my social media. Um, the other contingent of people who are having, um, you know, opposition to the book is unfortunately within feminism. Yeah. And so that is, of course, dicier. Um, and that, of course, is the trans-exclusionary contingent. They're probably my, my least favorite <laughs> They're my least favorite. Yeah. And well, they've, so been, I, they've been I popping up in my life a lot lately. And I don't, I don't understand where these people came from and <laughs> how I never realized there were so many. They've been here forever. Yeah. It's, it's horrible. I was just like, I didn't, I didn't know there were this many people in my life that were horrible. Like, I've been calling my Facebook list. It's just horrible. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So those folks, um, I will engage with at times but I also have blocked some people and 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 the reason that I block people like my my bottom line is if someone is making me feel unsafe mm -hmm. then I block them that's it's, it's so not smart absolutely yeah. And, and, and I figure if I, I'm a brave, strong person, so if I'm being triggered by them to the point where I don't feel safe, I know that people on my stream have already hit that threshold long ago. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm instantly, I don't know, I'm instantly put off when, when someone, when I see, it's always I just see it online, especially it's, I'll, I'll see just a little sentence and it'll say something like, um, the last, uh, exclusive goddess only space or something like that. And right. I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> right. Right. Wait a minute. That's not good. Something about that is wrong. And you dig a little further and you find out that everything's horrible. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, for sure. So, and, um, I, I personally exist on the non-binary spectrum. Yeah. Gender. Um, I'm. I am relatively like female presenting, like traditionally female presenting, in a lot of ways. But my my internal terrain is not that. Yeah. And anyone who's intimate with me knows that I'm not that. So, um, and the interesting thing about passing privilege is that I, you know, if I don't come out, people don't know. So I come out as. Yeah as I need to yeah and then you you hear all those those secret thoughts that people wouldn't say if if they knew you just a little bit more right <laughs> exactly awful. exactly exactly so and then the other complicated component in addition to the book being you know radically inclusive absolutely right? which I loved by the oh. way it was so radically inclusive and unashamed of how radical it was but like it didn't 
it didn't it the book never once apologized for being essentially a, a social justice warrior which made me super happy <laughs> super happy <laughs> excellent yeah yeah i do, i there's nothing in my opinion there's nothing to apologize for in that in that arena for sure absolutely um, and then the other added element is that my kid is trans. My younger child is trans. Yeah. And trans non-binary. And, um, and that is a whole thing in, in, in itself, of course, like uh, as, a, as a parent to be na- navigating that with your child is a big deal anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And then having a somewhat public persona amplifies that in some ways and then having published a book that trans exclusionary people are going to target amplifies it yet again and um i have never had anyone be so mean to me Mm. about my parenting as the trans exclusionary contingent of the big community which is which is so unusual it's just Especially because there's <laughs> the trans exclusionary crowd is, is almost exclusively made up of parents <laughs> or or people who intend to be parents. And to have them, especially in, in a, a religion or a spiritual path that is supposed to be so open, to have them, you know, trying to make you force your child into some little box is... Yeah, it's unusual. It it has never made sense to me, and it, it will never make sense to me. Which is yeah. why I liked your book so much. The second I read that little paragraph, I'm like, this is exactly. It. Yeah, it yeah, doesn't make sense that it's that so many pagans are so trans exclusionary, especially because they're so not homophobic as in right. general as a crowd. So the, <laughs> I just... that, that one of the complex elements of this. Uh, it's very complicated. And here's the thing. I've been part of, I mean, I've been queer for, I've been out as queer for my whole adult life. Um, I, I started identifying as queer when I was in my early teens. Um, it had somewhat to do with who I'm sexually attracted to, which has very little to do with well, I won't say it has little to do with their genitals, but I will say that it has much more to do with who they are in my life. Yeah, uh, I wouldn't go so far as to say that I'm demisexual. I'm totally not. But but for me to have an emotional connection with someone, it's less about whether they're well. For one thing, I unlink emotional and sexual connections too, right? Like yeah. we have a lot of emotional connections. I think our whole language around relationships is garbage, to be honest. <laughs> it really is. There's <laughs> I I'm I'm struggling in the last like couple of years. I don't even have like a sexual orientation and there's no right. word to describe what it would be. And, <laughs> right. And I have no right. words to describe even how I feel to make other people understand. And I'm like, you know, I feel like this is probably a problem. <laughs> Right, right, exactly. Because I'm not my a kid. kid. I'm like I'm like 30. I should have at least like one yeah. word I can use. Yeah, my kid who is 16 is of course has like like how do they even they're very clear on who they're attracted to. Yeah. And yet they there's no term that they can use. It's very complicated. Super complicated. Um, and then for me, uh, you know, I'm 45 and I remember when, you know, back in the 90s, when a, a, a it's kind of, I, I don't want to call it a trend, but people started coming out as being trans. I'm not saying that more people were trans all of a sudden, because mm-hmm. I don't believe that. I don't believe we have more trans people now than we did. No, I, I, just, believe I that, feel like we have more people that are actually able to say they're trans than we used to. <laughs> Exactly. And, and the people who were, who, you know, a a generation ago would have been completely stealth Mm -hmm. don't have to be at this point, you know, and thank goodness. Right. It's just, it's better. It's outrageously better. Uh, When I, when I watch, you know, old movies or TVs or something from the nineties, a lot of times I'll have this horrible moment where someone just says like a really awful like transphobic <laughs> joke and I'm like whoa you can't say that and I'm like oh my god this shows like 20 years ago yeah. years ago that was totally normal 
right, right. Yeah, yeah. it's mind blowing. It's, it's mind blowing. It, I'm I'm shocked almost every day. Thanks Netflix. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. And you know, I mean, it's so important to have that perspective. So I'm glad that we do have ways to check ourselves on that. But so in the '90s, people started coming out as trans. In my, I was in the Bay Area um, for the most part, and and in and uh, Seattle, and people were coming out as trans, and it was. In the lesbian community, which I've never been lesbian identified, but I've spent a lot of time in lesbian community. I like mm-hmm. women's space. Um, you know, uh, I I like being in lesbian community. I like being in, you know, gay community. I like being in trans community. I like being in queer community. I like being surrounded by queer people. It makes me feel happy. So, you know, wherever the queer people were, that's where I would go. So I ended up, you know, I had a, a lot of... I would say more so than now even. I had a lot because uh, I live rurally and our community is relatively um, small here. But I had a lot of lesbian friends in the 90s. I was very deep in and kind of in the um, BDSM community also. There's a, there was a lot of crossover in my scene in the Bay Area in the 90s. and uh, so big in the 90s. Even even here, I live in Windsor, Ontario, which is fairly small and backwards is a good word for it. Uh-huh, uh-huh. E- even here, we had uh, really cool uh, BDSM clubs that closed all right before I was legal to go to bars. Right. <laughs> but there right. were a bunch of them, and, and there was a huge overlap between those functioned as a gay bar, even though they weren't a gay bar. Right. Yeah. Yeah, because it's a safe space, because, you know, there's a lot of negotiation that happens. People are safe to say what they want and who they are, and, you know, and that's awesome. You know, I really value the BDSM community for that. It's not perfect. It has its flaws. There are issues of consent. It's being looked at, you know. It's just, uh, uh, as I point out in Jailbreaking the Goddess, right, all countercultures exist within the dominant culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Issues that persist in our culture all show up a little bit in in those little subcultures and countercultures they're all there just a little bit or or a lot as the case be and i think the less that we acknowledge them the bigger they get i agree i agree which which is why jailbreaking is the book that it is yeah because my my whole thing is until we like look at this stuff realistically it's gonna remain yeah um so in the 90s, when this, uh, you know, people started coming out as trans, uh, and a lot of it, there had been more visibility in the queer community of trans women than trans men. So in the 90s, it's been talking about the, the um, coming out of many young uh, trans men. And there were a lot of lesbians at the time who felt betrayed. Yeah. They felt like they were losing their butches. Mm-hmm. They felt like they were losing part of their numbers. They felt like uh, that previously queer couples were now heterosexual couples. They felt that, you know, and, and this was an ongoing conversation. This was a conversation that was happening across the counterculture of, you know, the lesbian scene in the Bay Area. Yeah. And so those are the same, that those were the seeds of the issues that are still here today around trans exclusion. That makes a lot of sense, actually. Well, I mean, it, it doesn't, but... But it does. Yeah, I mean, but you, it does. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think their issue, at. yeah, their issue doesn't make sense, but I, I, get how, I get how that came about and how that's persisted, for sure. Yeah, so a lot, I mean, the vast vast majority of the people who are notable trans exclusionary feminists are lesbians mm-hmm. yeah i did notice that yeah i did notice that which mm-hmm. again is odd <laughs> right and for those of us who are not trans exclusionary it's a total like you know sorry to swear but it's a total head fuck it's like yeah, what it's like, it's like you why would you do that why <laughs> that doesn't make any sense would you like someone to be that way towards you because I'm pretty sure you say all the time that that's not cool so right you know take your own right. advice here <laughs> right 
Exactly. So my feeling is like, uh, you know, would he, like obviously you wouldn't support sending kids to, uh, you know, gay correction camp. Yeah. Like, why would you support the parallel with making a child stay in a gender presentation that is not accurate for them? Yeah, absolutely. And especially back in the 90s, that presented itself in like, really disturbing ways. There's the the story of that young boy, and he had so many names that I honestly can't remember. But he, he was, uh, he had an actual physical problem with his genitals when he was born. And his parents made that decision to have him live as a female. And it was just like, in his very short life, because he ended up committing suicide, he he went through so many different gender presentations and so many horrific issues that it just he he didn't have a real identity or a life that he felt that he could live. Um, right. And it's just well, I, and- that's an extreme situation. But I don't see that as all that different than, you know, when you, your kid comes to tell you that they think they're trans, telling them, you know, no, you're not. You just have to stay the way they are. I don't really see that as much different than a than a forced surgery. Maybe it's physically different, but otherwise I, I feel like it causes the same problems. That should have been a really good warning to everybody, and I don't think people take took it seriously. Yeah, right. And it's, you know, I mean, it's the same story that's happening every day. Yeah. So, uh, and... When we, you know, one of the arguments from the trans-exclusionary contingent is, you know, 12 is too young to make a decision that is going to affect the rest of your life. Well, 12-year-olds are killing themselves every day because they're being forced to live in a gender that doesn't fit them. So... And also, you know, as I, as I say, you know, as I go, I go deeply into all of this in Jailbreaking the Goddess, um, in, in that... There, uh, the binary, gender binary is colonization. Yeah, absolutely. We are colonized by a binary system of gender. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so, and in, uh, you know, more, I would say in my, and I, I'm not an anthropologist, but the amount of study that I've done around this topic is, is it, you know, fairly considerable. <laughs> Um, and I would say it is far more common in, uh, you know, indigenous cultures for there to be more than two gender representations. Yes, absolutely. Lots of cultures all over the world have, you know, what they usually call a third gender or, you know, an alternative gender for people who don't fit into the two (laughs) that are regularly presented. And that's fairly common in lots of different cultures around the world. Right. And interestingly, some cultures have as many as like 30 genders. That's so awesome. So and uh, or 16, like some some cultures have something called the meta gender. Yeah. Um, some cultures have uh, the idea of, uh, you know, a man and a woman and a man, woman and a woman, man. And then that's four genders. Yeah. Um, so. There, there is no, we like to reduce things because it makes us feel comfortable. Um, but the fact of the matter is that gender is complex. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And so all that we can do in the end is to create spaces that are inclusive. Yes. Right. Which and we, breaking jailbreaking the goddess absolutely was. <laughs> it yeah, was, it was so aggressively inclusive. I was so excited about it. <laughs> so excited because my I I just I get in trouble a lot with other people. Um, you know, you don't have to be a screaming feminist all the time, and it's like yeah, but I, <laughs> I do though. Like I only have one speed, and this is it. And you need to get on my level. And it's just, I'm always just getting in trouble for stuff like that. And I'm like, how am I too inclusive? That doesn't make any sense. I'm not. Like, it's just. Right. And tone policing much. is the craziest thing. You know, when people are like, you're too angry or you're you're too abrasive. It's like, <laughs> you know, I'm only angry because you didn't hear me all the other times when I wasn't angry. Yeah. Like, I've been saying this <laughs> forever and I was really calm for a while. <laughs> 
right. I didn't just start here. So I that's really your fault. That's really your fault. Right, exactly. It's like, you know, well, if you want me to be less angry, you know, listen more closely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Because <laughs> you know? I bitch about this stuff all the time in a way that's like funny or easy to listen to. You should just, you should just listen more. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, did you ever feel... Um, personally disconnected from the goddess due to the 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 triple goddess model did you ever feel like a personal disconnection from your faith because of that um I would say I would say yeah um I definitely have in the context of working within the maiden mother crone system I would say that I definitely there have been times where I felt alienated which is part of why this book came into being. Um, I would, but I also have personal relationships with with deities who don't actually automatically fall into the maiden, mother, and crone archetypal system. Yeah. So I still had a connection to my own spiritual path. Um, I also have, uh, I have had a very diverse spiritual history. Um, I ended up studying Islam for a while in 2007, which was mind-blowing um, and definitely changed my feminism and my spirituality for the better. I believe that. I, I, I was reading a little bit about the time you spent in the Middle East, and it was it was awesome. What a, what a great story. What a great story. Yeah. That I, and it's, it's one I think... Uh, it's one I think a lot more people need to need to read. People need to hear more about very positive feminist experiences coming out of the Middle East and coming out of Islam. They they need to hear more of those because they're it, it's wonderful. It's wonderful and it it really changes your perspective sometimes. Well, it certainly changed mine and yeah. uh you know, I had no way of knowing before I was there what it would be like um and so allowing myself to really give myself completely to surrender completely to that experience um, really just changed a lot for me. It was, uh, you know, like, um, it was a, a spiritual accelerator for me <laughs> <laughs> because I just, I dove in and I, I released so many attachments to, you know, who I thought I was and what I thought feminism was and being able to experience this whole, you know, this culture that, that, you know, in the Western world, we, we really have no actual real concept for, yeah. um, you know, everything that we think about, pretty much everything that we think about Islam is not accurate. <laughs> <laughs> so true. <laughs> so yeah. true. So being able to go in there and just, you know, like really allow myself to enter into the community and, and the traditions and, and even the religion um, was, uh, you know, amazing for me. Super cool experience. Yeah. That's so cool. So, so what other what other cultures and and religions have framed your your feminine your very feminist spirituality? Um, well, I was raised in the counterculture here in California, so I um, was raised with uh, you know West Coast spiritual uh, <laughs> traditions uh, in the seventies and eighties, and um, and at that time we definitely didn't have as the, the concept of cultural appropriation was not mm-hmm. a thing that we were talking about. Um, you know, I know it existed outside of white culture, right? But yeah. as white New Age uh, pagan hippies on the West Coast, it was not something we were tuned into. And uh, also, I I have blood family that is Native American. And so uh, I did have that you know, Native American tradition was something that my mom drew upon in my upbringing. Um, and, you know, I, when I say Native American tradition, I, I'm talking about, like, the thing that we think of as, like, pan-Native American tradition, which, of course, is an actual, actually not Native American tradition. It's kind <laughs> of a, 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 a morass of different traditions all lumped together. Yeah. Although, as I've you know, grown older, I have, um, you know, started kind of looking at what those, 
uh, elements are. What I'm very, uh, I'm, I feel like we're blessed to be living in a time where uh, indigenous tribes and, and communities and nations the world over are, uh, are really reclaiming their traditions uh, via language, spiritual practices, etc. On the west coast of you know the states here, we uh, have we're surrounded by Native American communities who yeah. never fully lost their their traditions, which is also a blessing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I draw a lot of inspiration from just watching people find their roots. Uh, any people, whoever we are, finding our roots and uh, working on reimagining our own traditions. Um, I would say also another another element that that we need to be aware of, and I do talk about this in Jailbreaking the Goddess. Uh, there's a fine line. We need to be careful as we as we align ourselves with our own traditions, right? And start re-evaluating and reconceiving our our kind of genetic traditions even. Yeah. We do need to be careful not to be all again end up in an exclusionary bent. Yeah, absolutely. So in the conversation about cultural appropriation, I think that's so essential essential that we stay away from that kind of um, mentality that leads to, like, concepts of racial purity. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. If you know what I'm saying. Absolutely. No, I I absolutely do. It's, um, I, I don't know, sometimes with cultural appropriation, it's hard to, it's hard to figure out when you're going too far um, with being anti-appropriation I guess it's it's hard to explain it's you don't want to go from saying you know I think we should acknowledge the fact that a lot of these things we do come from this culture and maybe we should ask them the proper way to do it or if it's okay and I feel like there's a fine line between going from that which is fairly responsible to no we can't do this because we're white and the only people that can do this are the people from within that culture and if anyone else does it it's bad I feel like there's a fine line between those things and it's really easy to go just a little bit too far. Yeah. <laughs> and for, for me, I mean, I think I offer a lot of tools <clears throat> to address that in jailbreaking the goddess. Yeah. Yeah, you do. You absolutely do. Uh, you, you specifically mention um, getting in touch with the people from that culture, especially with, with individual goddesses, get to know her people and talk to them and ask to be included, ask how to study things, ask questions, but that they don't owe you anything. And if they tell you to get lost, you just have to respect that. And I really liked that uh, because another book I read on goddess spirituality just like just never said any of that, just completely uh -huh. left it out. And I was like, wow, you really should have put like some disclaimer somewhere so many of the goddesses in the book were from like closed religions i'm like this makes me super uncomfortable <laughs> so, right well I really liked and, that you and addressed that, it i really liked how you addressed it in the good. book thank you yeah that and you know i mean it's it's tricky and the fact of the matter is like that mentality that you're talking about in the other book is a legacy of like imperialist colonialist mentality yeah, it's and it's nothing new to to pagan Wiccan spiritual books. It's nothing new to that at all. Right. When I, we, look I at, mean, as as white people, we just think that we automatically have the right to everything. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All um, I still have a lot of books on Wicca that, you know, I bought back in the 90s when when Wicca was really popular. And a lot of those books um, I look at now and I'm like, oh, gosh, this is. <laughs> This is really fucking bad. Like, <laughs> this is so horrifying. Um, and when I read this other book that I had, I had read recently, it was a brand new book. And it read almost exactly like these books that were published in the 70s to 90s. And I, I was uh -huh. so shocked. I'm like, you know, 20 years ago, I would have thought this book was great and totally normal. And now I see that the whole thing is completely like in the trash problematic. <laughs> so it's, it's outrageous that within like Wicca, which is predominantly white, 
we've literally been doing the same thing and releasing the same books for 20 years that have been appropriating other people's cultures. And we just, not, no one's catching on that that's so messed up. That's so messed up. How have we not progressed at all? Yeah, right. And how has no one like, how has, how have n none of these closed cultures ever been like, you know, Wiccans, we're really sick of your shit. <laughs> and not well, just I, Wiccans, I, I, I feel bad because right. I, I pick on them, but they're just, they're the most popular. But it, it seems odd to me that none of these cultures have, have spoken up and, and told us that they're really sick of our shit. <laughs> well, and, and I think people do. Uh, and, and, and it has happened in the last couple of years, especially, um, certain groups have called out who, and I, you know, I don't want to name names because I don't want to, I don't, you know, I don't want to call undue attention to people, but, but I will say that certain organizations have been called out and some of them have responded better than others. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I know at a lot of conventions and festivals, things have been changing with some of the, the dominant organizations that, you know, plan the festivals or show up at the festivals. I know quite a few of them have changed or some have disappeared. Um, right. And there was a Michigan feminist festival um, that was notoriously trans exclusionary and they've since yeah. stopped operating. They're, they're no longer a festival, which I think is a pretty great idea. Um, right. So, so one, things are changing. One of, yeah. One of the things that could be a good start um, just in general would be for organizers of events to, especially like outdoor camp out, you know, camps, et cetera, yeah. to, and festivals and such, to get in touch with the tribal or, you know, First Nations community that has claim to that land, right? Yeah. Some of the situations that I've heard of specifically in the last couple of years have had to do with land rights issues because the United States government, the Canadian government are still breaking treaties with indigenous peoples, right? Oh, absolutely. They are every day. Yeah. So when we get a permit from the parks department to hold an event on, you know, national lands, and we don't go to the tribal community that has claim to that land, we are reinforcing the breaking of that treaty. Absolutely. That's a really good point. I don't think people, I don't think people really think of that because they've illegally anyways, you know, dotted all their eyes in that situation. But there is just a kind of an unspoken ethical, um, an unspoken kind of ethical, act that you can do to make sure you are being a little bit less culturally appropriate in your your festivals and stuff like that. Right, right. And another element that, uh, you know, in, in the groups that I've been working with, uh, another element that I've been trying to pull in, and this does, it's hard to get traction, um, is to invite uh, the Indigenous community into the event for free. Yeah. Um, to allow uh, any tribal members, um, you know, enrolled or unenrolled to enter the event um, as guests to include uh, the tribal members who are spiritual leaders in the dedication ceremonies if they idea. want, if they want to be included um, to collaborate in ways and, and to make sure that what we are doing on you know, in in a perfect world, what would be land that were owned by this tribe yeah. or nation, right? In a perfect world, they would own that land. So we should be making sure that what we're doing there is, it feels safe and good to them. I think that's a fantastic idea. That's a really, really good idea. I, I went to my first pagan camp out recently. And I mean, so much of it is, is taken from native culture. You know, you have lots of drum circles and smudging ceremonies and it's very especially with the the new age hippie type pagan which is popular in my area um a lot of it is very native american influence but there's there's no real native american presence i'm sure there's there are native people there but there's no real large native american presence and i feel like that would be an awesome idea and it would sort of authenticate everything that's happening at your your festival 
you know, your your smudge ceremonies would mean just a little bit more. Your your drum right. cycles would have different beats that that hit different notes inside your your consciousness. I feel right. like that's an awesome idea. Yeah, well, and and so that you know to loop back to the question, like why haven't communities brought it to our attention that we're fucking them over, basically, (laughs) you know, is, you know, my feeling is that it's really our responsibility if we really want to be, uh, you know, good community members, if we really want to be in uh, alignment and collaboration and creating something that is beneficial to the whole, it's our job. You know, it's our job to reach out and say, hey, I'm going to do this thing. Uh, Is this one? Is that okay? Two, is would you like to be involved? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because it's not it's not there. I mean, Jesus, you know, like the indigenous people I know have plenty to do every day just dealing with the basics of oppression. Yeah, I I believe it. (laughs) So you have to choose your battles, and I get why the you know we you know the question of whether uh, why aren't they following us around and keeping us in check? Yeah, they've got other they've got other people to follow around. They've they've got other stuff to do. So um, yeah, and so uh, one of my like my one of my very very closest friends is a local. Um, indigenous person and she and I have gone to a number of festivals together I've I've invited her to go to festivals with me as a teacher and um, you know brought her in to certain festivals and uh, and it's hard work and um, she bravely uh, volunteer when I was like hey I would like for you to come do this stuff with me You, you know your voice is missing. We need your voice there. Like there's a doorway. It's open. Come on in. If you're, if you're game at first, she was like, that seems like a horrible idea. (laughs) Um, but thanks for asking. And then she was like, okay, well let's give it a try. We gave it a try for a couple of years. And then we're like, okay, you know, that experiment's over with because it was too painful. I believe it. Honestly. And like, you know, walking around as as an indigenous person in the world today, just walking around is, you know, constantly you have to decide what you're going to be pissed off about because there's plenty to be pissed off about all the time, right? I mean, so think about it. <laughs> no, you're just I, I a woman. Yeah. <laughs> I, I believe that. Yeah, I believe that. You're a woman of size walking around. Yeah. You have to decide what you're going to be pissed off about today, right? <laughs> Oh, absolutely. And, I know that feeling. <laughs> right? And what parts are going to be like, oh, well, I'm, it's not worth my time. I'll just block that person or yeah. whatever. Right? So as an indigenous person, like you're dealing with a bunch of different elements constantly of like, you know, what what am I going to allow to affect me today? And so when I brought my friend Corinne into the festival scene, um, watching her have to make the decisions moment to moment about what she was going to be offended at and what she was going to let go of just watching process. It was exhausting because in, you know, quote unquote conscious festival community, you know, people are constantly appropriating indigenous culture. Constantly. It's, I I feel like that one is uh, indigenous culture, especially has really, um, been picked to pieces by like the neo-pagan community really a lot it and most of them have no idea where what they're doing or wearing comes from and it's 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 hard to watch sometimes it's very hard to watch yeah it's yeah. it's really cra- it's really 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 hard really crazy and like the first day that we were at a festival Corinne and I walked in or yeah, I was standing outside the bathroom. She walked into the women's restroom and she walked out and she looked like she had just like seen someone die. I mean, her face was, I was like, what happened? Oh no. She was like, there's a girl in there who's like dressed as Pocahontas. Oh my God. Oh, that's so horrible. Like, right. That is a thing. Yep. 
Yeah, I'm um every time Coachella season rolls around. Right. <laughs> the internet becomes the worst place in the world. And right. I just I just have to log out for like a week because I'm like I can't look at these yeah. teenagers grossly appropriating someone else's culture and like they know they're doing it and native communities are constantly like please stop doing this right and it's just it's exactly I so can't that's why they're not that that's, for her. Why, that's so bad exactly that's why they're not following us around being like hey you're you're pissing us off because <laughs> there are there are other fish to fry here there are so many fish exactly so my point being if we want to be uh, you know, good community members to our indigenous community, then we need to show up to that relationship and be, be proactive in it. Yeah, Abs- I, I absolutely agree. That's, oh my gosh, Pocahontas. I just, yeah. What year is this? How do you still I, not know? Oh, I, I know. And, you know, the girl was probably like 19 oh, and yeah. thought that, you know, like Pocahontas was her favorite Disney film or something. I don't know. So bad. Well, I have I have no idea how it happens. That, that's probably it, exactly how it happened, honestly. Well, the color of the wind. Oh. <laughs> and you know what that movie's like? It's pretty fun when you. It's pretty fun when you when you don't know, and then years right. later, and you know the story gets like... ruined when you learn the real story, and you're like, oh, I don't love <laughs> no. this. And yet I still see them in Halloween stores every year. I know, right? So, exactly. Exactly. It's it's so awful. It's so awful. I, I hate when people wear anyone else's real life as a costume. It drives me completely crazy. Completely yeah, crazy. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And there, it's rampant. It's still rampant in our community. And, like, people's indiscriminate use of the word gypsy, for example, which... <gasps> It's great. I, I can't believe that's yeah. so pervasive still. Yeah. Still. Yeah. yeah. That's that's actually a big one. I have a like in my list of future podcast episodes, I want to dedicate like a whole episode to just that because just that is really really bad. And when I point out to people that that is that's a racial slur and that that really hurts people when you say that to them if if they are, you know, from the culture, it, they're like, "Oh my god, you're just like taking it way too seriously." And like when people have, you know, a Pinterest board or whatever that's, you know, gypsy boho, it's all white girls in their early 20s, like at Burning Man and stuff. And I, I just, that's so obviously not right. It's so obviously not right. How are you yep. still doing this? Especially right. because it's it's not like that's a culture that's disappeared. Right. And, and. It's just And once again, there are so plenty bad. of there are plenty of people who are like, Hey, you know step off and yeah. and you know, and the the reaction is not good. It's so. usually anger. Usually when you when you confront someone about them do it I I've noticed that when you confront someone, especially about something like cultural appropriation, uh their immediate reaction is to get angry and blame you for being offended. Right. And, and and defensiveness is a huge component. And people really, are like really bad. But it but I but my spirit is uh you know Yeah. Gypsy or whatever and then you're like, Well if your spirit were you know, aligned toward the Romani experience, maybe you would start using a different term. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's that's especially bad I find with spiritual people because they'll bring up something like, you know, I feel this in my spirit or my soul or I, I have a past life in which right. I, I I was a, a Romani person and I'm like, you know, I feel I feel like that's just not a good enough reason. It's just not. And I know that we're all spiritual people here, but we gotta live in the real world and that's just not you're not living in the real world and in the real world people are offended by your actions and they don't give a shit about your past lives so right you need to they just that person's not here anymore that life is dead and gone you need to you need to adapt that to your new life and you're not right you're not using it properly right i find that's extra bad with spiritual people because there's always some reason that can't be proven or disproven right it's it's hard to argue right. with stuff like that sometimes. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, the main, I would say the, the way that we get through this is one, having the conversations, right? Yeah. And two, I would say even more importantly, like, if you feel like you are Romani, find actual people who are of descent and see if you can, you know, learn about the culture in a respectful way. Yeah. Uh, and then see if you actually feel like you are that. Yeah. Because, <laughs> because I mean, what you, what you learn about on, you know, fancy Pinterest boards or whatever about a culture is so skin deep. It's, it, it doesn't even get to the heart of what that culture is actually about. So you may not actually, you might just like wearing scarves. Like it's, it, that's not necessarily a, a deep connection. That's the only right. way to find out is to ask. Right. And that right. doesn't sound so hard, but people are so afraid to do it. People are so afraid to just ask someone within a culture, you know, am I doing this right? Is it okay right. that I do this? Can I watch you do it? <laughs> you know, the, people are so afraid to ask that question. Why do you think people are so afraid to actually get involved um, with this culture that they feel such a deep connection with? Yeah, good question. I would say, one, uh, we fear the unknown, mm -hmm. right? We're, we uh, are culturally, we're pretty xenophobic. Um, and also I would say we fear rejection, right? In this case, especially we fear doing something wrong. Yeah. Right. So all of those elements can, uh, kind of pile up and make it feel very difficult to make those connections. But if, you know, if a tradition is calling to you, then, that's, that's, you know, what maybe what you're being called to do is to make those connections. And, and I want to say too, like, and I do talk about this in, in jailbreaking, but don't go empty handed. Yeah, absolutely. Like, don't, don't be the, you know, white, uh, you know, explorer <laughs> getting in there trying to get yours and, and not actually be part of the community. Yeah, that's still just taking, but, you know, with a polite intro. <laughs> you're still just taking from that culture yeah that's uh that's such good advice that's such good advice um yeah that, and of oh. course the, the other element right also is don't uh you know don't don't expect that that these people are are there for your enrichment yes absolutely i liked that that little bit of text, they don't owe you anything. They don't owe you your culture. They don't owe you an explanation. They don't owe you an invitation. They don't owe you anything. And I think that's such good advice because I, I feel like, I, I feel like for the people who would think ahead and, and think to ask people and get in touch with people, I don't think they would ever think that they would be rejected, that, that these people would say, no, we don't actually want you in here. Um, you need to leave. I don't think people actually see that coming. <laughs> and I bet when it happens, it's it's pretty embarrassing. But people don't actually see that coming. And they don't, they still are entering, even though they're being polite, they're still entering under this mindset that they're going to get what they want and that they're just going to be invited in because they asked. And that's that's difficult, I think, for people to grasp. <laughs> Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, and so like in any, you know, we've all, I'm sure we've all heard or read, you know, stories about what it takes to be, um, you know, dedicated to something. And, and even if we haven't had that experience ourselves, you know, there, there are teaching tools out there. That's what stories are, are for. You know, we get to hear about it and then be like, Oh, that's what it takes. Like, you know, in, uh, if you're going to convert to Judaism, right, you don't necessarily get taken on the first time that you go find a rabbi and say, hey, I want to convert. No, that's not a one-day process. <laughs> right? Right? Yeah. 
So you have to show that you are willing to stick around. You have to show that you are willing to do the work, that you're willing to make yourself vulnerable, right? And and Absolutely. so like that or, or, you know, being taken on by a martial arts teacher, like, or, you know, going to fight club, right? <laughs> you stand out there till they say, come on in. Yeah. Right? Yeah. No one's talking about it. So how else would you get in? You got to work up right. to it. Exactly. <laughs> you got to work up to it. Yeah. And I think that's, um, I, I like that, uh, in the second half of the book where it's more, um, you know, you're, you're done talking about each of the five faces and you're getting into more the practical application of, of everything you've talked about in the first half of the book. I like that you still have, you know, um, dedication and in- initiation um, rituals that people can do for themselves. And it's tied right in with this, with this idea of cultural appropriation. Like it's, that is a natural first step. You need to do this first and then you do the dedication in, in whatever way you see fit. And I feel like that first part has just been so sorely missing from other books. Whereas that second part is, is one that, you know, I, I was reading and I'm like, Oh, I'm kind of familiar with this. This is really cool. So I, I like that. Um, theoretically, if, you know, when the book starts to catch on and if this really starts to change the way group ritual happens, that, you will see this shift where that will just be part of the learning process. I really want one day to, you know, go to a meeting for a coven or something and then introducing their year in a day concept that includes going and talking and learning from a culture, you know, outside of the coven because they can't give you everything. I, I'm really looking forward to that just becoming a natural first step in your dedication process. Right. And and the other added element, of course, is that when we enter into these communities that we try to be of service. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that, that we um, and in whatever way that 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 shows up, uh, because even if a community is not willing and, and I would say, you know, service first and then asking to be taught. Yeah. You know, that we go in and we say, what what can I do? You know, how can I help? And that's the other, another thing that we have that's really fucked up about our culture is that we will go places and be like, I'm going to help you by doing this thing that you don't want. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, um, <laughs> like a group of nurses that go to Africa to build houses. Right. I call it helping at people. Yes. That's a very good, that's a very good descriptor. <laughs> Right. So I talk about that actually in the Antiqua chapter quite a bit because, um, you know, the like we're used to helping at our elders. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes they really don't want or even kind of need the help. It seems like they need it a lot of times, but they nobody wants to feel helpless. Nobody wants that. Right. Nobody wants that well, at all. There's a there's a great level of dignity involved with the the Antiqua chapter it's a lot about treating with uh Antiqua with respect and dignity and that it's not going to be easy to interact with this face of the goddess right and I think a big part of why it's not easy is because we have all these ideas about how it's we're supposed to do it and when it would be so much better, gentler, sweeter, kinder, um, more collaborative, more empowering to actually go to a person and be like, I would like to be in service to you. What do you need? How can I help you? What's yeah. the best way for me to show up for you? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Instead of having our ideas of like, well, what you really need is. <laughs> and again, that sounds so easy. And yet that is such a hard concept for people to grasp. Um, and I found that all through the book. The book was wonderful, but it shook a lot of things loose. <laughs> it really shook some stuff loose for me. I, I This book shook me up in like a big way, in a good way, but, but in a really big way. <laughs> um, so what, what, were, what was one of your, I like, this is one of my favorite questions. So I'll ask you a question now. Okay. What was your largest challenge with the book and... Second question, did that challenge deliver a, like, a teachable moment for you? Oh, it's getting pretty good, but unfortunately, we've reached the end of part one of my interview with author Lazara Firefox Allen. 
Part two will be released Friday, July 15th, so check in then, and in the meantime, pick up a copy of Jailbreaking the Goddess. You can get it from Llewellyn Publications or from Amazon, like I said, for Canadians dealing with the Canada Post strike. There is a Kindle version that you can read right away. So thank you for tuning in to The Fat Feminist Witch, and you will hear me next week with part two of my interview. Bye.